Thank you, Connie. I still just love having people read the Bible to me. I think it's just really, really wonderful. And thank, thank you guys. The trio was amazing. I just had this sitting there, I'm thinking this idea, next year, you need to do your own Christmas CD. And we, <laughs> we could give out to the people here in the, here in the church. I just think that would be wonderful. Just, just um, yeah, listening to the, the trio was just really a delight. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Really beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and these promises that we just heard. And, and um, it's just the, the, beautiful, the beautiful way it was read and, and uh, just uh, how it touches our hearts to, uh, with joy and, and hope and, um, and anticipation. Uh, we trust your promises, and uh, that's, I know that's what you ask us to do. And so we come together this morning to declare that um, in spite of what all we bring with us, that we can declare that your promises are true and we will continue to trust them and uh, we will continue to count on it. And we thank you that you have promised to be on our side and um, in our favor and you want our well-being. And um, we thank you for that and we look forward to the time when that will all be accomplished and that we will be in your presence and, uh, and be in the new Jerusalem and uh, where we, peace will reign. And so, Father, we ask that our lives be directed toward that, that uh, we continue to love those who you bring into our, our lives and that you uh, encourage us to, to manifest your goodness and uh, the gospel of Christ through everything that we do and everything that we say and that we are, are, um, are good ambassadors for your goodness. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, a, um, I usually tell the couples when, I, when uh, they ask me to do their marriage ceremony, I often tell them that uh, it's really one of the reasons why I got back into the pastorate, because I like doing weddings. And uh, they're always fun, they're always optimistic, they're... You know, a lot of couples, you know, with stars in their eyes, and they're always seeing things for the better, and, and they've got all these promises ahead of them that uh, they're looking forward to. And I always enjoy it. Now, some weddings are more fun than, than others, uh, but I always enjoy doing them. And that's uh, really one of the reasons why I want to get back to the pastor. I like being a part of these people's lives at this crucial moment and uh, where they're, they have this future ahead of them. And the hope is just something about that moment that you're, you're, you're in. Well, uh, when I was in seminary, we used to debate things like this when uh, we would talk about ministry or whatever, and these, these uh, of course, is all in the theoretical because we're in the classroom. And uh, there was a place in Dallas called Dan's Liquid Cafe, and it was the only place that I knew of that was open all night. And uh, you could go and get an egg and, an egg and onion sandwich and a cup of coffee for a dollar. And uh, so we would go there and just shoot the breeze and, and then just argue and debate and all these kind of things and um, thinking like we knew what we were talking about. <clears throat> and uh, Sue always says that her friends told her never date a third year seminary students because they all think they know what they're talking about. They think they know everything. And so we thought we knew everything. And we would debate and one of the issues that we debated was whether we would marry, do a ceremony for divorced people. And of course, you know, where people are saying, oh no, that, that would be not biblical and stuff. And, and now that I'm out in the real world, I'm going, yeah, that was just my self-righteousness talking. 
that was pure self-righteousness. And uh, you realize um, that you've got God's ideal, but God is also a realist. And he knows that there are plenty of times where this things, these things happen. And as it turns out, one of the weddings that I really enjoy doing happens to be people who have, uh, who, who are, this is their second marriage after that. And for some reason, I actually enjoy that. And it's because, I think it's because we've got people with eyes wide open this time, and their eyes are, are wide open and they're, they're ready, and, and they kind of know what's ahead, and uh, they're realistic about life. And, uh, but at the same time, there is this, it's more of an event of healing as much as it is optimism. And you almost feel people healing in this moment uh, rather than just you know, going on and, and thinking everything's going to be naively okay and just gonna, we're going to live happily ever after. So you have this kind of realism, but you also have kind of a, a healing kind of time. And, when, and the more I got into the, especially the Old Testament, and uh, that was my emphasis there, uh, you know, I started to realize there's a reason for that because that's the picture God uses all the time. He uses this picture all the time. Uh, he, he has called Israel, and we will talk about this a little bit later, but he will call Israel, he called Israel out to be his bride, and then you get into the prophets, and he has this constant image of this separation, this divorce, and you even got one prophet even, even commanded to marry a woman who commits you know, constant infidelity and unfaithfulness, and he says, you keep pursuing her, you keep going after her. And so you've got this picture of God as a bridegroom, sort of, who's, who's married to who sees Israel as a bride, but divorced, and you see the prophets this whole time wanting to marry again, like there's healing going on. And that's kind of the picture we get here in Isaiah 61. We get it through Isaiah, through all the prophets, but this kind of the picture we get through Isaiah 61 here. And, and I picked this passage specifically after Christmas because I think this is what tells us what Christmas was all about. And we, we have time of family and fun and joy, and it's all that, and it's all that's good. And yes, we, we come on our Christmas Eve service, and we celebrate the incarnation of, of God actually becoming one of us, Emmanuel, God with us, and we celebrate that. But it, it, it goes much deeper than that. It tells us, I think the, Chris, the Sunday after Christmas, we ought to be talking about why that happened to begin with. What is God doing? What is his purpose? What is his eternal plan? What is the whole purpose? Uh, I meet with a couple of guys uh, weekly who have uh, completely left the church, but they said, I still, I still believe what I was taught. And, uh, and he says, I think the ethics of Jesus is, is really good, and I continue to do that. And I think that's, that's great. Well, that's good, and that's not, nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, it's, it's not all of it. There's more to it than that. And then you meet other people who, who emphasize, which is also real, which is also good, that it's a matter of all just saving souls. And the ethics are good, the saving souls are good, but it's even bigger than that. It's more complete than that. And it's funny, I mean, Jesus gives us his job description in Luke chapter 4. He comes in and tells us what, he, uh, what he's going to do right after the temptation where Satan is tempting Jesus to say, what kind of Messiah are you going to be? And he tempts him basically with, with, with temptations of power and fame. 
And you know, these are these whatever these are visions or whether these actually you know physically happen, you know, we don't know. But the point is that 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 the enemy is tempting Jesus to be another kind of Messiah than he chose, another road than the road of suffering. And right after that, Luke tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he comes back and he says, uh, then Jesus, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just read verses 14 to 21. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through the surrounding country, and he began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, where he was brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read the scroll from the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives, recovery of the sight of the blind, let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the, all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is his job description. This is what he came for. And he quotes Isaiah 61. Now, in the New Testament, when somebody quotes a verse, Jesus, Paul, Luke, whoever is writing, and they quote one verse, parchment was expensive. So they can't go out and just rewrite the whole thing. But when they usually do this, they usually want you to, to key in on something. And most people would say, well, they hear this and they know the context exactly. They know that, that Jesus is referring to Isaiah 61. Of course, they didn't have chapter title numbers back then, but that's the idea. So you go back and you have to go, what is, what is Isaiah 61 about? And this is what God is doing. This was his eternal plan. His eternal plan is for people, human beings, basically to reflect God's goodness in the world. He is trying to place human beings back in their rightful place, restore the good creation. In other words, John tells us it's a new creation of managing, stewardshipping, ruling the planet in his image as he reflects God's goodness. So that is kind of the whole purpose. He is trying to create, create a community of people that will corporately reflect God's image to the world. And the ethics is part of it, but we all know that we can't keep the ethics. And saving souls is part of it, but it's more than just going to heaven. It's this whole package, this whole package of this new creation that he is dealing with. This is why Jesus came. So in the very beginning of chapter 61, Isaiah tells us, uses the, the first person here, and I assume that he is talking about these, we, these servant songs that we've been dealing with, which we'll pick up next week. He's talking about the servant is saying this, that, that uh, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and has sent me to bring good news to the press, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and release the prisoners. That's Jesus talking. We now know that this is Jesus the Messiah this is his calling. And you have this beautiful picture of the triune God here. You have the Father who calls, you have the Spirit who anoints and who empowers, and you have the servant, the Son, the Savior, who is actually carrying it out. And so it's, it's this beautiful picture of our Trinity God, of our triune God that exists in this eternal, loving relationship, acting to save humanity. 
And so this is his job. His job is to go out and he preach those who need it, the oppressed, the prisoners. Now, does that mean he's not there to preach to the rich people or to the powerful people? Uh, of course not. His gospel goes to everyone. It just kind of depends on which end you're on. But his gospel, Jesus had rich friends. Paul had rich friends who, uh, who, who sponsored him, who, who planted churches, helped him plant churches. It's not that. I, I kind of picture it as the idea that uh, for the people who really have room for this, room for this gift. And I think he's addressing people who actually have room. I don't know if anybody's ever given you something, uh, maybe something for the house. I mean, we were offered a piano once, and we already had one, and we could say, no, we've already got one. I don't have room for it. Well, I think the thing is with richer people, powerful people, you, they get the idea that they don't have room for this. Well, the oppressed and the poor, they have room. And I think that's why he's addressing the oppressed and the poor and the prisoners here. Because they have room. They know. They know what they need. And so it's really only a talking about whether we admit our need or not. That's really the point. Do we admit the need? And so he says, this is what I've done. This is what I've anointed to do, to preach the oppressed, those who need it. And he says, I've come to release, I've come to replace, I've come to rebuild, and I've come to reflect. Okay, those are the four R's for good and good preacher style, right? Uh, he says, I came to replace, release, release the prisoner, release the oppressed from, from what they're, they're, um, they're experiencing. To take care, to free them. We're talking about freedom and, liber and, and liberty here. And he's also talking about replacement. I don't know if you noticed when Connie was reading this instead, this instead word. It's kind of an unusual word that just keeps getting repeat, repeated, repeated. And he says, I, I'm giving this instead of this. In other words, I'm retaking your mourning, your loss away, and I'm replacing it with joy and happiness and gladness and, and victory. I'm taking your garland, I'm putting a garland on your head and I'm taking away the ashes. Why do people put ashes on their heads? To grieve, to mourn. When something goes disastrous wrong, whether it's for the country or whether it's personally, they throw ashes on their head. If someone, it's all about dying and mourning. He's saying, I'm going to take those ashes off and I'm going to replace it with a crown, a garland, a garland of victory, a garland of happiness, of joy and gladness. And it, the idea of this garland here is a victory sort of thing in a sports uh, symbol, a sports kind of way. And so it kind of implies victory rather than defeat and despair. So he's replacing that. He's going to say, I'm going to take your, your mourning clothes, the clothes you wear to go to a funeral, and I'm going to give you party clothes, basically. I'm going to give you clothes for a wedding. I'm replacing all of that. And then he says, I want you to reflect like oak standing in the ground with courage and boldness and righteousness and goodness and not bending. It's a reason why he picked oaks for the picture here. Because they don't bend, they stay. And then he says, and then you will rebuild. You'll rebuild the devastation. This wasteland that the broken relationship created will become these these vibrant cities. And what do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? Exactly that. We see the new Jerusalem rebuilt. We see the temple rebuilt. We see er this is where God is going to dwell permanently with his people. So he's painted that picture for us. And he says this is, this is more than just uh, ethical good news. This is about healing. This is about restoration. This is about freedom. This is about liberty. This is about a, a salvation that is not just 
a pie-in-the-sky salvation. This is salvation that is tangible and real and that can be touched. Renewed cities. Renewed people. Real clothes. Rebuild ruins that were in a wasteland. It's a very, very tangible thing. So why is God doing it this way? One thing that Christmas helps me reorient myself is to be happy with small beginnings. And if you can't think of a smaller beginning than maybe a six-pound infant, you know? So that makes me appreciate small beginnings. But why is God doing it this way? I, we often have the idea of, of Christ returning as this, this violent, vigilante, warrior kind of person who's going to slaughter everybody, slaughter all the people we want slaughtered, you know, and save us, of course. But everybody else, they, they, they're, they're, they're need to go, Right? And I've always wondered, I've always had trouble with that. Because my, my question is, did the cross take care of sin or not? The way he took care of sin was through the cross. And I'm thinking, if he could have done this, if he comes back and he's going to just make everything, you know, all the, just slaughter all the bad people and keep all the good people and, and, and force people to obey them, if that's what his plan is, why didn't he do that in Genesis 3? We could have saved us a lot of time here. Why didn't he do it when Christ came the first time? Why now? Why, why in the future? Why that? Because that's not God's character. That would run contrary to God's character. God brings covenant. He brings promise. He brings comfort, Isaiah says, over and over and over again until maybe we might get it. He brings comfort. Not, not slaughter. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, I, and I, I don't go there. I never preach on the end times because, I, frankly, I don't know what's going to, what that's going to look like. Um, it's, anybody who tells you they know, they're lying to you, <laughs> and they're lying to themselves probably. We just don't know what that's going to look like. I just know he's coming back. I just know he's going to return. But that's, again, that's his character. Anything else would violate his character. Are there things that God can't do? Yes. He can't violate his character. His character is in covenant, promise, restoration, resurrecting out of ruins, life, not death, light, not darkness. That's his character. So the ethics are good, but they just don't work because we can't be up to them. So what of his purpose? If, he, if I think he was going to, to tell us in one sentence what his purpose is, he spends the time describing it. If I can turn this page here. Part of 61's on this page and part of 61's on this page. So. Verse 9. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offsprings among the people and all who see them shall acknowledge that they are the people whom the Lord has blessed. And I believe this is kind of what he has come. That Jesus, God, our triune God, wants to be seen. He wants his glory to be known, not because he's egotistical, but because his glory is full of love. His glory is full of goodness. His glory is full of peace. All of those things. And he wants that to be seen in every city, in every town, in every village, in the planet, on the planet. That's why he came, to reflect his goodness, 
that all will see him. He is a God who wants to be seen, and the way he wants to be seen is what? Through us. What a responsibility. The last couple of verses kind of gives us this picture of this, out, this outflow of God's character through us, and he gives us this picture of the end game. And it's really interesting. He gives us two beautiful metaphors here. A wedding in verse 10 and a garden in verse 11. Where have we seen that before? Genesis 1 and 2. We, Genesis, the Bible begins with a wedding and a garden. And if you trace the Old Testament through the New Testament, that is a theme that kind of runs through. And he's, he's not saying that, that this is this is some rule that we all have to obey. It's a theme that he's running through, a picture of what he's trying to show his relationship to us. The relationship was broken. But then it comes back to Abraham, who we have Abraham and Sarah. And we have the miracle boy, Isaac, the laughing Isaac. And then Isaac's servant finds a woman by a well and tells him about Isaac, and the two come together, and they have the family. And then you have Jacob, who falls in love with Leah. I mean, Rachel, sorry, but gets tricked with Leah. But the idea is they have a family, and Jacob becomes Israel. He has 12 sons and become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you go through the prophets, and you see this symbol all the way through. And then you have John, the book of John, who begins with the beginning, like Genesis. The word became flesh, and we became the light, the life of all men. A new creation has started. And what's the first miracle we see in John chapter 2? A wedding. And then he goes on, you go on a couple more chapters, and you see John talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. Jew and Gentile in one body. And she has, she's had five husbands, and she's on number six, and Jesus comes along as the number seven, not in a physically marriage way, but in the symbolic way of this perfect new creation. And then you have Paul talking about the bride of Christ in Ephesians. And then you get to Revelation, and you see the bride of Christ with Jesus. in a garden. It all comes full circle. This is his plan. This is his eternal plan. That it all comes back to this new creation. And so we're talking about transformed people. Transformed people as the bride of Christ. The Bible also talks about Jesus' crucifixion. And when he stabs him with the spear, blood and water come out. And people, scholars have debated this over and over and over again. What does this mean? What does this mean? How does this mean biologically, et cetera? I, I think, uh, you know, it's probably because of John. I think it's probably uh, a very picture again. He loves pictures. And I think you have the blood that cleanses from sin and you have the water that gives life. And I think that's what he's getting at here. And that's what we have here in the end of Isaiah. We have it ending where the Bible begins, with a wedding 
and a garden. And he says, we are clothed in grace. We are decked out like, a, like a, the, the bridegroom is decked out and the bride is decked out. And it's a party and it's joyous and it's gladness. And one of the observations I wanna make about this chapter is that God is the subject and we are always the object. God is the one who does this. He is the center, he does this. He clothes us, he, he transforms us. He places the garland on our heads. He takes away the mourning. He is always the subject and we are always the object. And that's what the gospel is. That's why Jesus came. That he's taken this wasteland that's a result of this broken relationship and he's making it whole. And that's what we look forward to, the garden and the wedding. That's what Revelation tells us. That's what Genesis tells us. But what about now? We are supposed to be kingdom people. We are kingdom people. We are to manifest this victory that Christ won on the cross and through the resurrection. We are to manifest that. We are to implement that victory. We are to implement that new creation right now. And Jesus' strategy all along has been to leave these, these communities in every village, in every town, in every city, all over the world of people who reflect his glory, of people who corporately, who corporately together reflect the goodness of God, a family who reflects peace, a family who reflects goodness, a family who, who reflects righteousness and justice and freedom, people who get along, who live together in spite of differences. This is what, this is, was the eternal plan of Christ. And we look forward to that being completely fulfilled when he returns and he puts things right. How he does it, I don't know. But I know that, I know that he will. That is God's eternal purpose. That we have this corporate expression of the goodness of God, that we reflect his character as we hope for the new creation to be culminated and put right when he returns. That's the purpose of Christmas. That's the purpose for his coming, to create a people of God who reflect his character. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for the book of Isaiah who speaks so eloquently of our need and of your solution. Father, we ask that Christ be incarnate in us as individual, as transformed individuals who then become a transformed body. And it's in the Savior's name we pray. Amen.